0: Oh, hello people of Podcastland, welcome back. My guest today is none other than Dave Rubin, host of The Rubin Report and author of Don't Burn This Book. Today we're talking about everything that he's written down, including how he left the left, what it feels like to deep throw a red pill on your own show, what Dave sees as the problem with modern liberal thinking, how Batman calling someone racist can be a life-changing event, why Douglas Murray could be a viable candidate for a superhero, and much more. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult, and Crafted London have nailed it. They're the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. But for now, please welcome Dave Rubin. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. I'm joined by Dave Rubin, host of The Rubin Report and author of Don't Burn This Book. Dave, welcome to the show.
1: Chris, it's good to be with you. We are doing this across the pond over these digital waves that everybody is now stuck on. We thought we we were too online before this thing, then Corona comes and this is the only way we can do anything. I want to be more online now, yeah. First, First things
0: first, Dave, why is your book dedicated to Ben Affleck? (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh, this is either going to go down as a as a brilliant marketing ploy, or Affleck and the Affleck Empire will have me destroyed. We should know the answer in the next couple of days. Uh, but I devoted the book to Ben Affleck because I tell the story in the book about how Affleck actually, believe it or not, was was a key piece to my political awakening. Because you may remember Ben Affleck was on Real Time with Bill Maher when Sam Harris, the the neuroscientist, and uh, really mindful, uh, thinker, uh, was on to talk about his book, waking up a a guide to spirituality without religion. And they started talking about how you have to separate ideas from people, meaning we should be able to criticize ideas. And that doesn't mean that you should be bigoted towards people. And they were talking about it in a religious context. So in this case, you should be able to criticize uh, the set of ideas that is Islam, but what you wouldn't want to do is be bigoted towards Muslim people. And by the way, of course, you should be able to criticize any set of ideas, whether it's the set of ideas that make up a religion, Judaism, Christianity, whatever it is, or the set of rules that make up a political party, or a set of rules that make up you know, a, a, a basketball rules, anything like that. Uh, Sam calmly laid this out, and Bill Maher sort of backed him on this, and next thing you know, Affleck was huffing and puffing and screaming, And in effect, he called Bill Maher and Sam Harris gross and racist, and this is about five years now, five years ago, and in that very moment, I saw exactly what I had been thinking was wrong with the left, exactly what I had been thinking was wrong with the progressives, in, in stark daylight. I had had these thoughts for a while, you know, where you're just calling everybody racist, you're calling everybody a bigot, you're always morally right and that with this indignation and anger, but suddenly to see it turned on this mild-mannered neuroscientist, who I, I didn't even know who he was at the time, and then Bill Maher, who really was the standard bearer of the left, at least in an American context, he's been our basically our biggest, most outspoken Lefty, the guy gave Obama a million bucks for his reelection. I mean, he has fought every progressive issue. You know what I mean? And constantly railing against Republicans. And then Affleck says you're gross and racist. And then the next level of it was watching the media just parrot that because Affleck said something. Just because a Hollywood star said something. Next thing you know, Vox and Buzzfeed and HuffPo and all the usual suspects are suddenly saying that Bill Maher and and this Sam Harris guy that they're racist. And and that was really one of the, the, I lay out three key points of waking up, going from, say, woke to awake in my book, and that was one of them. So I feel that I owe Ben Affleck, even though we've never met.
0: Thanks, Ben. Um, yeah, yeah, it's isn't it you, interesting ben? that sometimes, even though we know things, we need quite a symbolic inflection point to happen so that it, it causes something, right? So my favorite uh, quote of the whole book is right in that, section and i'm just going to read the passage out now so you're talking about the particular way in which ben puts his words across which is compelling to a very particular type of, of watcher viewer listener fan this tactic is typical of people who don't know what they're talking about instead of having a solid argument based on fact they simply moralize their way through life shooting people down and throwing terms around as a distraction their over-the-top emotion is enough to convince unthinking people on a base level. They've won because it appears as if they're morally right. Man, I, I really, really love that. I thought that's a lot of sense-making going on there.
1: Yeah, thanks. Well, you know, it's interesting. So let's say, this is Chris, this is the first time we've met, right? Now, let's say uh, I said something in just a moment that was you kind of thought was like a little bigoted or odd or racist or something. In a normal situation, the way functioning people behave, you wouldn't immediately call me a racist. You might follow up and ask me something to go, oh, maybe I misunderstood you, or are you sure that's what you meant to say, or something like that. But what Affleck did, and you know, this is also partly the way TV condenses everything and makes everything stupider, that these segments are so short that you end up sort of becoming like the worst version of yourself, which is why so much in cable news is just, you know, hacking at each other and pounding each other. But in effect, in a normal argument, if you met somebody at a bar and they said something, it would take like a couple beats before you called them racist. But Affleck, the fact that that was the initial thing that he went to, it shows you what that thing is. It doesn't mean you know what you're talking about, but it seems like you know what you're talking about. And unfortunately, for a huge swath of the American population, but I know that you guys are dealing with this in the UK, and it's a, and it's a worldwide phenomenon actually, acting as if you're morally outraged has replaced thinking. So that's really what I was trying to get to there. And the fact that it was coming from an A-list actor and the rest of it, and what you said earlier is right. We all walk around, we're sort of thinking things. And and if you're a thinking person, you're walking through the world, you're trying to piece together a cohesive worldview. Sometimes though you need the moments like that. You need to see Batman call somebody racist <laughs> for the for the whole thing to crystallize, right?
0: I love it, man. You've read Douglas Murray's The Madness of Crowds, right? And the intro Douglas to-
1: is one of the greatest writers on earth. As a matter of fact, when I was writing this book, I was reading The Madness of Crowds at the same time. And I have I have all of his books. And I was like, man, this guy knows how to turn a phrase. I mean, you guys in general, that's what Americans are always uh, jealous of, Brits so in general. one thing we've got, but-
0: yeah, we've got crap weather, but we've got some some lovely vernacular. Um, you did, but you yeah, do. man, so you you were worried about, I've opened the book with dedicated to Ben Affleck. You know, you could have chosen a lot of other people that weren't Ben, um, but Douglas had Nicki Minaj lyrics at the, <laughs> at the start of his book. So if he's yes. managed to get away with that, I reckon you can get away with... Next thing, next second most important thing before we fully get into it, what's your favorite thing about Michael Malice?
1: <laughs> ah, Malice, I mean Malice. I I call him the uh, the Willy Wonka of politics because he's such an over the top, um, brilliant thinker that it is so hard to pigeonhole what he really is thinking versus how he's using trolling um, he's a brilliant wordsmith. he's one of the few people that I don't hate on Twitter um, <laughs> because I'll read something of his and I'll go whoa that was clever and then I'll have to read it three hours later because I'll go man that was even Still better clever. than I it yeah was. exactly he, he's just a great thinker he's fearless um, he's staking out positions that are extremely uh, politically incorrect in many ways yet are sensible and that he thinks them through. And what I really love about him is he's playing a long game here where he he always says that, um, conserv- what's, what's the line, conservatism is just uh, leftism at the at the speed limit, something like that. I'm slightly butchering it. But really that he's thinking about the world in a sort of holistic way and also kind of being fun about it and, and trolly. I, I, Very yeah, he's playful, great. isn't he? Great Have thing.
0: you seen the hair purgatory that your show has left him in?
1: I did see a picture so, after. For I know, the people, for having, the people he's that, he's that don't a know. Lot of hair. Well, everyone's having hair problems. Well, not you these days. We this can't went get our off hair
0: yesterday. Well. This came off oh, yesterday. Yeah? yeah, exactly. So for the listeners, uh, people that are just listening, you're going to have to imagine it. But this was the day after my, my flatmate shaved my hair. So I've usually got sort of curly hair on top. Um, yeah. So Michael did a little bit of a streak in his hair to do this Tulsi yeah. Gabbard look to come on your show. Yeah, and his plan was to grow it out and cut it out, but now he's in New York, locked down with no barbers or hairdressers available, and he's just stuck in hair purgatory. And he's no, just he got looks- this streak in his hair, and he says he's tried every nineteen twenties gents hairstyle available, and he's going through like the side part or like the slick back. And I'm trying to get him to do a, a man bun, but he won't. He won't go for it. Um,
1: he's but, looking kind of bananas, but it, it fits the overall political that low key
0: thing. Yeah, the the political low key. Um, so. Yeah. On to uh, Don't Burn This Book. Why Why did you write it?
1: Well, I wrote it. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, the absolute truth is, you know, although I had been thinking about a book for for quite some time, when I was on tour with Jordan Peterson, uh, we were in uh, in Ireland, Ireland, we were doing the Dublin show that night, and I got a call from my agent. And he said, you know, we're getting all these offers for you to do a book. Do you want to do a book? And while I had been thinking about it, it's like once it was presented to me, then I was like, all right, now now, now, I guess I gotta do it. You know, it's time to to make the move. And I'm a firm believer that when things get presented, if, if you're roughly interested in them, you should take that opportunity, like take opportunities as life presents them. So when I signed the deal, it was originally why I left the left. And I talk about this right at the beginning because sort of everybody had sort of associated that phrase with me. I did that You video. It's got like 20 million views and I think, that was the idea, like, let's get Ruben to talk about why he left the left, and I started writing that, and then I was just kinda like, you know, I've said all of this before, you know, I think part of the reason that people care about what I what I do and what I talk about is that everyone can sort of see how crazy the left has gone. You guys have a particularly insane strain of it in the UK, by the way, although your last election, you know, hopefully tampered it a little bit, um, but, I was ahead of the curve on that like what i was saying four years ago about the left is now sort of mainstream thought and when i was writing it i was like you know i don't want to write a book that's just about the stuff that i'm against meaning i'm against leftism i'm against collectivism and progressivism um i want to write a book about what i'm for so i actually scrapped it and i had to talk to to the agents and everybody to make sure that they were okay with me doing this because it wasn't the book that i signed up for and we changed the title and everything else and then what I really realized was I wanna show people a little bit of an autobiographical how I survived the monster. Once you start actually speaking up, how do you get through the mob? How do you identify fake news? How do you chart a course that is sensible? And, and also talk about the ideas that I think are the correct ideas, which are the ideas of classical liberalism, which in, in a modern sense have much more to do with libertarianism and even conservatism than, than, well, certainly than progressivism and everything that the, that the liberals from an American perspective have. I know you guys actually have a much stronger tradition when people say classical liberal, you guys have a much better understanding of that. Where in America, the word liberal has just been completely mangled. And that's one of the things I'm trying to clean up a little bit here.
0: Yeah, what what is the difference between leftism and liberalism, uh, classic liberalism? Give us the roadmap.
1: Yeah, so... So liberalism, classical liberalism, is, is very simple to understand. I mean, the most important thing is individual rights. If you are a member of any free society, meaning you're a citizen of any society, whether it's the UK, whether it's the United States, whatever it is, we have equal rights for everybody. That's it, there is no special treatment based on skin color or gender or any of those things that we have somehow become obsessed with. Equal rights for everybody. And then basically laissez-faire economics, that the light touch of government when needed is, is all that you need. And that that is basically the formula to allow people to live with the greatest amount of liberty and freedom so that they can, in American context, pursue happiness, right, pretty, pretty sweet. And by the way, this is the founding uh, principle that the Constitution was written on and the Declaration of Independence was written on. Now, in an American perspective, that sounds very much like a libertarian. And what I always say is the only real difference between a classical liberal and a libertarian is if you were to take libertarianism to its nth degree, and this is sort of like a malice type place, you would be disassembling the government everywhere. I love that intellectually. And by the way, because of coronavirus, I think we're seeing so many inefficiencies in government that I think a lot of people, I'm seeing lefties right now wake up to all sorts of things. Like why do we have federal income tax? Because people need their own money right now. Like these are really super interesting things, which is, which is pretty great actually. But I would say the difference between a, a libertarian and a classical liberal is that the, the classical liberal sees a little more need for government, a little bit more. So I do believe government can, we can have public education. I don't want it exclusively. I also want school choice and charter schools and all sorts of stuff. But I do think the government has some role in keeping a social cohesion. But at the same time, I want most things done by the states. So I live in California, and unfortunately we have super high taxes and the whole thing is pretty inefficient and totalitarian. Um, But I could move, and that's a beautiful thing. I could move to Texas, and maybe I will, uh, where, taxes are lower and maybe the, the people are a little more in line with the types of things I think. That's a beautiful thing because if you don't have states' rights, well, if you don't like it in one state, well, then you gotta leave the country. So America was really set up on this beautiful federal system where there's an ongoing experiment all the time. So, so libertarianism and classical liberalism, it's very close except for those marginal things of where the government should get involved. I would say then the difference between classical liberalism and, and conservatism at this point is that generally conservatives have a little more of a religious view of the world. So then on some of the social issues, I think they get a little hung up, but actually not as much as they used to because many conservatives now see gay marriage as whether they're thrilled with it or not, for example, they've just let it be. Like there's really nobody railing against it. And I think most of their fears uh, turned out to be unwarranted. Um, and And then the difference really, which is your question, between liberalism, classical liberalism and progressivism is that progressivism basically means the state should pretty much do everything. So whenever Bernie or AOC or any of these people talk about anything or Corbyn from your perspective, it's like they want the state to pretty much do everything. We want free college for everybody, we want the state to tell businesses what they can pay people. There is nothing, you know, free healthcare for everyone. Of course nothing's free. That and then the problem with that is that once you start, if your starting point is the state should do everything, this top-down thing. I like bottom-up, I like individuals then can build a system. I don't like, oh, the system then has to basically quash the individual. The problem is with with leftism, so you could take something like the the minimum wage, which here in America, there's this, this big debate. Should we have a $15 minimum wage? Now, I don't believe in a federal minimum wage anyway because I believe in competition and I know that I have a ton of people that would love to work for me. People offer to work for me for free all the time. Now, I pay everybody that works for me, and we pay them quite well, actually, but I don't think it's up to the government to decide whether I pay that person $13 an hour, 15, or 20. Now, the problem on the left is Bernie comes out and says, well, I'm for $15 minimum wage, and then Rashida Tlaib, a congresswoman here in in the States, comes out and she says, well, I'm for a $20 minimum wage, and then it's like, well, I guess so, because you just made up a number. Why can't I just make up a number? And that's why the government just grows because all they're operating off of is how they feel about any given thing. That is extremely different than saying I'm for individual rights, which is what classical liberals and conservatives and libertarians believe. I want everyone to be equal equal playing field. It doesn't mean that some people aren't born with more. It doesn't mean that some people aren't luckier. It doesn't mean that some people won't work hard. But those are all things that, that that's just the human condition. And the government has to get out of the way as much as possible. And I think unfortunately, just to wrap this up really quick, the, the progressives saw liberals, liberals that, that are nice and decent and open, because that, the, the liberal mind usually is those things, and progressives saw that and said, we can get in here. There's a weak underbelly, and let's get into the system by basically destroying liberalism and taking over the Democratic Party. And I think that's basically what we've seen. There are no good liberals left. I mean, there there's very few. It's like it's like the Jedi after Order 66. They've been <laughs> they've been scattered across the galaxy and hunted down, you know?
0: Yeah, I get you. One of the points that you brought up was about gay marriage, and I thought this was really interesting. What you mentioned was that being liberal means being sufficiently, uh, liberalism means being sufficiently liberal to support gay marriage and also sufficiently liberal to tolerate people who oppose it. Yeah. That, on the surface, doesn't seem like a tremendously complex point. It, again, comes back to individual sovereignty. You are allowed to decide to like and dislike whatever it is that you want. And yet, if someone was to say, I disagree with gay marriage, and you don't say, bigot, racist xenophobe (laughs) homophobe whatever you pick your thing um that would be like well you you, it just doesn't doesn't mesh right you know it doesn't seem to make sense
1: well that's that's where the feelings thing should not be the thing that we're governed by what we should be governed by is that we're all treated equally under the law that that is my underlying principle behind everything else that i would talk about so for example i have had several guests in my studio, which as you know, is in my house. I'm in my house right now. I have welcomed in people such as Ben Shapiro, who's an Orthodox Jew, who by his outlook on life, his religious perspective on life is against same-sex marriage. I have had Bishop Barron here from the Archdiocese in LA, who from his Catholic perspective is personally against gay marriage. I have had fruitful, honest conversations with them. Now before gay marriage was passed, were either one of them fighting for gay marriage? Of course not. Um, But at the same time, gay marriage has now been passed and I don't see either of of them trying to legislate it away. So what you have to understand in a free society is there are going to be people who disagree with you. There are going to be people who disagree with your lifestyle and the rest of it. But as long as they don't take that onto your property, as long as they don't try to destroy your job or your life or anything else, then actually you should relish in your differences. And the irony, what what right would I have to tell Ben Shapiro, an Orthodox Jew, or Bishop Barron, a Catholic, or, or, or a devout Muslim, what right would I have to say you must bend to my will? I don't want them to have that power over me, so I have to accept that I don't have that power over them. Now, I think what you can do, and by the way, I've said this to Ben many times, that. What you can do is by I think by being a decent human being, over time you can show people that maybe some of their views are a little bit backwards, or I don't even want to say backwards. That maybe there's some of some of their traditional views, maybe maybe the time has passed on some of them or something like that. Perhaps
0: their views actually don't align with their values anymore. And they've just grandfathered these old views in by, by way of, well, they were here, therefore I'll keep them going. And again, what, what, what did we say right at the start? That inflection point. Perhaps sometimes you can be that inflection point.
1: Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. It's actually a really great point. So let's say somebody's values don't quite match up with their views suddenly or their political beliefs suddenly. What would be the best way to get them on their, on your side? Would it be to call them a racist or would it be to continue to talk to them? Continue to have that conversation, and then over time, and this is what I've said to Ben: is Ben, you know, when I'm 90 and you're 85, and we've done this for 50 some odd years, I suspect you'll have come around to my position a little more than I'll have come around to your position. He doesn't agree with me I now. I bet he didn't. Like, I
0: bet he didn't agree with that at the time. Yeah, I bet <laughs> right. he didn't.
1: But, but there's only one way to find out. And I'll also tell you this: you know, there was a night when when we were on tour with Jordan Peterson, and we did uh, our second LA show. And it's at the Orpheum in here in downtown LA, thousands of people, it was, it was one of our best shows. And I brought Ben on as a surprise guest. So I go up and I do about 10 minutes of lobster jokes and getting everybody laughing. And then I bring Ben on, Ben comes on, he brings a little cupcake with him. Cause you know, there's, there was this meme about that he wouldn't bake me a gay wedding cake as if I would want Ben to bake me a cake anyway. Yeah. So he hands me a cupcake. He does an impression of Jordan Peterson. We, we do a little funny banter back and forth. Couple videos get out on Twitter. And it was so interesting, because I'm in a room of 3,000 people, and everyone knows he has a traditional view of marriage. Everyone knows that I'm married to a man. We get up there, we're having a great time. There's mutual respect. Everyone in the audience is laughing, cheering, screaming, it's great. A Couple clips go out on Twitter, and suddenly it's the tolerant progressives calling me a self-hating gay, and Ben a homophobe, and our audience a bunch of white supremacists. And it's like, you know, I was just in that room. And in that room, what America really is about is what was experienced. And you guys from the outside, while you tell us we're all bigots and self-haters and all the rest of it, um, perhaps you might want to look in the mirror. So I think over the course of time, if you're a decent person, you can bring more people to your side. And unfortunately, that's just really been lost on the left.
0: I get it. I I think this might be a small area uh, discrimination, or perhaps a UK-wide one, although based on some of the stuff we saw in the last general election, maybe not UK-wide. But I have to say, personally, as someone from the northeast of the UK, none of this stuff. We don't hear words about, there's no debate about transgender bathrooms, <clears throat> there's no discussion about whether the gender pay gap's this or the gender pay gap's that. <laughs> like, reading your book feels a lot like a window into a world which doesn't exist and i know it does exist that's interesting it, but yeah. it's it's not one that i can can really relate to all that much well, that's i'd be good. i'd be interested to hear for the people in the uk that are listening tell me if i'm alone with this right just because i i really i spoke to Zuby, i've spoken to douglas murray i've spoken uh, andrew doyle and you know these i don't know whether there's certain areas certain corners of the internet perhaps after this goes up i'll be just fully Feet first into it. We'll see who we'll see who catches catches onto this episode. But you get my point, right? It's it's interesting for me to watch, and I'm super glad that I'm the voyeur in this rather than the person that's 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 getting stuck in. Um,
1: yeah. Well, I, I hate to tell you, you can never last as the voyeur too long. Like once you've talked to dangerous Douglas Murray and Zuby and Andrew Doyle and me, I mean, eventually you won't be on the voyeur side of that. But but I, I actually. That's inspiring. What you just said, actually, the idea. Thanks, Dave. That's what.
0: That's exactly what I'm here for, mate. Yeah.
1: Well, well, (laughs) uh, there you go. I mean, that. But that is that is the truth. Because look, a a lot of these bad ideas about gender pronouns and everyone's a bigot and all this stuff—it's not real, other than. It's pushed on us by the mainstream media all the time and the rest of it. So when when Douglas, who I would say is fighting it in the, in the most brave way possible and has been fighting it before everybody, when he's fighting it, it's not that it doesn't exist, but it doesn't mean that it's everyone. It's a really loud yapping dog that we finally have to just sort of put in a cage and just say well you can keep barking but we're to go not going to it listen needs to go to-
0: out the back in the woods doesn't it and just yeah a, a, a shotgun I, I need to segue here have you seen how jacked douglas murray's got recently
1: i haven't i haven't seen bro it in the,
0: dave go on, on, his, on his twitter everyone that's listening right now go on to douglas murray's twitter and try and find some of the most recent photos of him that guy has got jacked out of his mind he's just i don't know what he's been doing he's been using coronavirus preparation for like <laughs> i'm not even kidding i'm not kidding you at all when we recorded he'd had like a couple of glasses of wine and just look like a normal dude and now he looks like a pro athlete i'm not honestly go and i'm gonna, I'm gonna i saw on.
1: i saw a picture of him with some scruff i thought you know he's that's going the next through level like,
0: man that's a ne- so he started he grew the beard and then he's he's got jacked so that's it yeah. right huh. next next thing um why do people need a roadmap to leave the left like i can just leave my house so i'm a football team or my gym or my business, you know, like I can do what I want. Why do I need a road map to leave the left?
1: Because unfortunately, it's a lot easier to walk out of your house and walk into the gym than to leave an ideological echo chamber. What, what these people have done quite effectively is trick good people who have very decent views, uh, which probably you share many of, they've tricked them into thinking that they shouldn't say what they think. So when I say it's a roadmap for leaving the left, I want people to understand that if you want low taxes, if you believe in borders, if you believe in an American context, the second amendment, but certainly also the first amendment, if you believe in free speech, if you believe in the right to assemble, all of these things, these these are beautiful things that for some reason, if you talk about them and don't follow every other piece of leftist dogma, you, you, are, you are out, you are racist, you are a bigot, you are all those horrible things. And that has cowed quite literally millions and millions of good people into silence. There are, I mean, the amount of email I get from people who are moderates, I mean, the most moderate, but might have some, perhaps a personally traditional view of marriage, or might be for low taxes. So here's like the best example I can give you. So if you, I find this one all the time. I I speak at a lot of libertarian events and libertarians will come up to me and say, you know, Dave, I'm afraid of saying in college that I'm a libertarian because people will say I'm racist. And it's like, well, what what does that mean? How did racist and libertarian get confused? And the reason is if you say you're for low taxes, what a lefty will say to you is you're for low taxes. That means you hate poor people. And if you hate poor people, that means you hate black people. And if you hate black people, you're a racist. Now, first off, you can tell them that, well, actually, there are more poor white people than poor black people. I mean, that's just a fact. They, don't, they won't care about that. And you can also then say to them, you know, a lot of our programs that are supposed to help poor people actually hurt poor people, which is why the black community has been so hampered by these handouts in an in America, American context instead of helped all of these things, and people don't wanna be called all of these horrible things. So what I've tried to do here is lay out a roadmap. You are gonna be called horrible things. There is a chance people will come for your job. The media might do a hit piece on you. You have no idea the ensuing chaos, but if you are a free person living in a free society and you refuse to stand up for what you believe in, you refuse to say what you believe in, well then you get whatever's coming to you. You deserve whatever's coming to you. And I don't think most people wanna live like that And by the way, I'm pretty hopeful right now because you know, with corona, one of the things that's happening is the online uh, conversation and the mainstream conversation really are converging into one thing. We're watching CNN anchors now, and I'm sure you guys are doing it with Sky anchors and everything else, that are basically broadcasting out of their kitchens. And once you see them without all the makeup, without all the fancy lighting, without all the teleprompters and everything else, and then you see the average guy on YouTube who is just sharing his thoughts, which I would say is something you know, close to what I've been doing, you go, holy cow, these people really are equal. And if anything, maybe this guy even even knows more. So there's been a, a democratization of, uh, of news right now. So I'm, I'm very hopeful that people can start breaking out of this stuff and that the roadmap, as I say in the book, it's like, if, if I give you the roadmap here and then you come out and you're not with me on every one of those issues, you don't believe exactly what I believe about abortion or you don't believe exactly what I believe about gun rights or whatever else, but we basically broadly agree on freedom, then we're in good shape.
0: Did you see the most recent uh, Eric Weinstein on, uh, on Joe Rogan?
1: I saw, like, tiny little clips of it. It's you, been pretty busy should, around it's, here. It's, it's, one yeah. of
0: those, it's one of those ones you probably need to dedicate a little bit of time yeah. to. Um, but he talks about this specifically to do with how what is mainstream media now? What are we classing as mainstream media? What you could call NBC and ABC and BBC and Sky News and stuff like that is traditional media. But if we put this video up and this video gets 20 million views, which would be great. Um, but if this, we put this video up and it gets 20 million views or Joe Rogan puts an episode up and it gets 20 million views and Sky News puts a recording up and it gets 1 million views. Who's mainstream media? Like That's just a term. We're talking again about grandfathered in from the old world, because previously being on a network was a signal. It was signaling. It was a sign of virtue, of integrity, of production quality, of research, of all the rest of this stuff. And as you said before, with Bill Mayer and uh, increasingly now with a lot of news shows – the fact that you've got to squash it into three minutes and 43 seconds before the next ad break comes in. And well, we need to cut to John, who's in the parking lot talking about this going on, like all that sort of stuff. The fact that you have these constrictions on it inherently means that the quality is going to be lower because you chopping it up into like unbelievably tiny little bits. And yeah, I thought that was, that was a really, a really, really interesting uh, discussion. From those two yeah. guys. And I, I want to say something else as well about what you just brought up, which was, um, Douglas <clears throat> Murray mentioned this. He said that people who don't take ideologies wholesale and take them piecemeal are going to be the immediate targets for anybody on both sides. And the reason he said this was the case was that anything which seems not to fit the prescript, the prescribed bill for whatever the particular stance is that you're taking, let's say that you have conservative views on most things but uh, a progressive view on abortion or pick your little way of piecing it together, says the nuance and the individuality gets seen as the other side as weakness. It gets seen so, as that's the weak point. That's the Achilles heel. That shows that you actually don't know what you're talking about because you're supposed to, you, Dave Rubin, because you, you're for gay marriage, you're not supposed to do this with, with taxes and you're not supposed to do this with whatever.
1: Yeah, so there's a lot there. So I would say broadly I agree with, with Douglas's prescription there, but I would add one thing, which is that it's not exactly equal. So on the right… Generally speaking, on the right, if you're a conservative, if you're a libertarian, a classical liberal, you're allowed to agree to disagree. I, I mean, I am pro-choice. I talk about it in the book. I'm begrudgingly pro-choice. That is one of the ones that for conservatives is like the biggest no-no. That, that more than anything else is like the one that they view as like the one that, that they cannot budge on, except I am welcomed to their discussions all the time to have that debate. Uh, They're not all thrilled with gay marriage, but I am welcomed to have that discussion. I am against the death penalty. Most conservatives are for it. I am welcome to have that debate. Now try to do the version of that on the other side. There's almost none of that where if you pick one, try to imagine someone that's on the left that's pro-life. They've made a point now. Democratic politicians make a point of saying it all the time. There's no room for you if you're pro-life to be a Democrat, to be a lefty, Um, if you don't take, their position on uh, minimum wage, as I just mentioned, or you don't absolutely sign up for the Green New Deal and believe exactly what they believe on any given day that the world's gonna end in 12 years, as AOC says, and all this other stuff. So, the, so Douglas is absolutely right that the, that the piecemeal person who's really trying to do what you're supposed to do as a human, which is figure out how to think and why you think what you think, which is exactly what this book is about. The piecemeal person is always going to take more fire because you have a more complex system there, and that complex system is going to have some, some weaknesses sometimes because it's a work in art, right? Well, we should
0: uh, be inherently suspicious of anybody who, once you know maybe two or three things about their views, you can then extrapolate out the Ex- remainder.
1: Well, I, I find that to be the most boring type of person there is, you know. Uh, but again, there is an ability on pe- for people on the right, at least right now. I'm not saying it was always like this, but why is it that I can go out for an afternoon drink with Nigel Farage and agree to a- disagree on a bunch of stuff and we were pretty drunk and we could a- agree to <laughs> disagree?
0: A, that, that guy likes to you know.
1: Why can I sit with Donald Trump Jr. and agree to disagree? Why can I sit with Glenn Beck or Dennis Prager or a million of those other people? And and there's virtually no version of that on the left. I'm not saying that there are no good lefties, right? So you can talk about the Weinstein brothers or Sam Harris or a couple people, but I would say in effect at this point, if I mean, I say this all the time, but defending my liberal principles is becoming a conservative position. And that simply is true. That is what the new conservatives are about. So the left is just purging people and the right is basically standing there and saying, join us, and what I wanna do is I don't wanna convince, I don't have to convince any conservatives that I'm more right. I'm not trying to make any conservative more pro-choice. I'm just saying to the conservatives, hey guys, Carve out a little space over here for us because there's an you know, because these guys are bananas. So give us a little room to operate <laughs> over here, and a lot of cool stuff can happen. And by the way, that's happening already.
0: I get it. Um. So this links in. Why do Republicans or conservatives get labeled as bad, and why do Democrats or Labour voters get labeled as good? Is it just signaling? Uh,
1: yeah. Oh, it's complete signaling. I mean, I, I have a, a section on this. I mean. This, this is just factory setting thinking. This is just stuff that you get from the media. You get from culture. It's like Democrat good, Republican bad. Democrats care about poor people. Republicans care about money. Democrats are for peace. Republicans are for war. You know, Democrats love gay people. Republicans hate gay people. There's a million of these, of these nonsensical things. And all that is, is factory settings that through culture, through state education, through all these things, you just, that is where we all sort of baseline start government good, it's all the baseline stuff and what your job is, you know. And, and I love the phrase factory settings because it's like when you get a television or a computer, you get a new MacBook, what do you do? It comes with factory settings and then what do you do? You might make it a little brighter, you might change your background, you might have a different sound, do this or that. It's your job to, to, to modify your system to something that you like and that's, that's what the way you behave with the world should be as well. So the only reason that those things stick is because, unfortunately, the the media has sort of colluded, I would say, with the Democrats or with the left to sell a really dishonest meme. And that meme is that Republicans are all bad and in a weird way or, or conservatives are all bad. And in a weird way, this is Donald Trump's greatest strength. Donald Trump saw it. Like the Republicans tried it with nice guys. In retrospect, I think most people think John McCain was a nice guy, a decent human being. Mitt Romney, a nice guy, a decent human being. And guess what? They both lost. So Trump just said, you know what? I'm not gonna play by these rules because it's not just that as a Republican I have to fight the Democrats. That would be an easy, an even fight, right? It was just Democrats versus Republicans. Battle it out and to the winner goes the spoils. But what's really happening is it's the Democrats and the media as this huge monster versus the Republicans. Well, that you can never win. So Trump just went in and said, well, I'm just gonna blow up the whole freaking thing. <laughs> and and that, that's why what I find what the, the people that I'm often most frustrated with are these, these absolute never Trumpers. Because I'm not saying first off, I didn't even vote for Trump, okay? But I broadly like his policies and I understand his tactics. And the idea that this guy's Hitler or any of this other stuff, it's just nonsense. What he's going in and doing, he's doing all the dirty work so that the, the good liberals and the good conservatives can still go to their parties and think that they're nice people. And then they shit on him for it.
0: Yeah. Um, I have a question. Are you a Nazi dressed in the skin and clothes of a Today Show correspondent?
1: <laughs> well, that was a, a loose quote from a piece in Der Spiegel where they had me on the front cover of the whole thing saying that I was the grand illusionist of the alt-right and they had a very scary picture of me. I was sitting in my green room where I have a uh, uh, an American flag and I was sitting under the American flag and that's really a an alt-right signal. And they said that, you know, they, the whole article was written as if I was some sort of like evil elitist. They talked about my Italian coffee maker, which is an espresso machine. <laughs> That you was get my it at favorite bit, and you're like, yeah, it's you an
0: Nespresso coffee maker. It costs about 140 pounds.
1: Hundred, yeah, 140 bucks. You get it at Walmart. So, uh, but then he, you know, he wrote, and he has New Yorker magazines on his walls. Yes, I do have one postcard from a New Yorker. It's I got it for five dollars on the street in New York City. But the whole piece was a work of fiction. And the, the disappointing part is that this guy who visited my home, he watched me do several shows. He came to a live event that I did that night at University of Southern California. Um, he, he was the illusionist. He decided to paint me as this evil, racist thing and, and just lie and fabricate. And you know, one of the interesting things is, I didn't know this till after, but there's a law in Germany that if uh, a publication is gonna write about you, they have to run all of your quotes by them. So this guy spent literally all day with me from about 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. In that piece in Der Spiegel, there's not one quote from me. Because he would have had to have no run it by. Way. So he, so basically he spends all day with me, then writes a piece of fiction and doesn't quote me once in the entire thing, that's even though insane. I spent hours talking to the guy. So that's just, I use that example as just one of the many ways we've watched the media collapse. Journalists, when I use air quotes, are the ones destroying journalism. So you're
0: does this mean you're Nazi adjacent then? Or...
1: Uh, adjacent adjacent
0: <laughs> yeah yeah cool which is 180 degrees actually yeah
1: which makes you adjacent adjacent oh adjacent. my god
0: so, yeah. yeah congratulations Fuck.
1: um
0: how can we spot fake news i want to know
1: well i i loved writing this chapter because i think it's it's sort of the most functional in a way because we are so manipulated by the news and as we're all stuck right now at home with corona Big tech, which loomed large over all of us, is now even bigger, right? We can't congregate at a bar. We can't go to a political rally. We, we can't even go out to dinner with our friends. So big tech, which had all of this power over us, is now way bigger. So I lay out several types of fake news. The one that I'll, I'll go with for this is one of the pieces of fake news, or, or one of the aspects of fake news that I think is the most insidious is not just that they lie about stories or that the headline is often very different from the article or they mislead you by cutting a quote in the middle and the rest of it. One type of fake news is the stories that they won't cover because it doesn't fit their narrative. So months and months go by where mainstream just won't address a story properly. A good example of this would be when Brett Weinstein, who is the professor at Evergreen University, when he was being attacked for being anti-racist, I mean, he. All he did was the school had, had put out a new edict that white students should not come to campus on a given day because to protest racism. They had always had this day where students of color voluntarily decided not to go to class and Brett was okay with that. But then on two years ago, they decided no, on this day, we're gonna actually tell students not to come based on the color of their skin. He said, no, 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 that's racist, which we all know it is racist, of course and psychotic for a university to tell a certain type of student not to come to class. I mean, it's actually mental. This thing was blowing up this story, and then there were roving gangs with bats trying to chase him off campus and a whole bunch of other stuff happening. The New York Times just refused to cover it. CNN refused to cover it. That's a type of fake news. It didn't fit their narrative that lefties are good. And and the irony is that Brett, I don't know what he describes himself now, but he was a progressive. He was a lefty, 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 Bernie-supporting lefty. So it's like he wasn't even good enough for them. But that that really goes against the narrative. So the New York Times just ignores it. That in and of itself is a type of fake news.
0: It's fake news by omission rather than it's, by commission, right?
1: Yeah, it, I love that.
0: Um, yeah. You know who he needed in that situation when everyone was roaming around with baseball bats? Jack Douglas Murray. If he'd had <laughs> jacked Douglas Murray with him, no one was fucking with Brett.
1: I like this idea of Douglas Murray as a superhero. Bro, I
0: think you're I'm not lying. I'm not kidding at all. Um, He was something that I was surprised by. Again, I'm politics isn't sort of the the tip of my spear for what I usually get interested in, although I've got exposed to a fair bit, sure. especially over the last few years. It's difficult to avoid. I didn't know that nationalism was classically liberal. Yeah.
1: Well, can you, national- can you
0: explain how that works?
1: Yeah. So I, I referenced the book that I have right here uh, by Yoram Harzoni called The Virtue of Nationalism. And and I think you guys in the UK have a, have a particularly unique experience related to nationalism because of everything that your last, you know, four some odd years were about related to Brexit. It is your right. It is the right, I would say, of a nation to decide what its borders are and to decide to defend itself however it would like to, and to decide who can come, when they can come, how many people can come, and the rest of it. We, the, see, the simple truth is we're all nationalists, we just don't know it. I believe that America has a right to defend itself, to define its borders, and all of those things. Britons have decided that it is your right to do the exact same thing, that you don't wanna outsource your decision-making to bureaucrats in Brussels. That's a beautiful thing, in my opinion. That is a beautiful thing. You wanna be governed by the people you voted for, not some amorphous bureaucratic commission that isn't even within your borders, right? So we are this is how this is how a society can work in the most functional way. There's this idea that somehow the global community must come together and decide what is best. But that's actually deeply, deeply dangerous because that often removes the autonomy of each individual nation. What what's you the want,
0: point of nation states if that if you just do that?
1: Well, exactly, what's the point of nation states? Now, some people would say, well, then we should have no borders. I'm completely against that, I want a border. United States has Canada to the north, we got Mexico to the south, I like that we have borders. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't let anyone in, that doesn't mean we should have no immigration, that certainly doesn't mean we should be xenophobic or racist or the rest of it. What it means is, we have certain laws, there are privileges, it is a freaking, honor and and the most spectacular privilege in the history of the world to be an American citizen. You are the freest freaking thing that our ancestors could never even imagine how ridiculously free we are. We can sit around on TikTok on our iPhones talking about how oppressed we are in the United (laughs) States. That is a a beautiful thing, right? That's all the
0: freedom you need right there, yeah.
1: Yeah, that is all the freedom you need right there. So what you want is you want every nation to decide what's best for its citizens and then those nations can come together and decide how they wanna to work together on things. So it is a virtue to be nationalistic. What, what unfortunately has happened here is they've, they've tricked a lot of good people into thinking that somehow if you're for your nation, that you're a racist. So this would be why a lot of Brexiteers were called racist. This would be a lot of why a lot of Trump supporters are called racist, and it simply isn't true. There is a reason you have a lock on the front door of your house. That doesn't mean you hate everyone on the outside, but you're allowed to protect your house. I have a fence and I have a lock on my house. And why would you treat your nation any, any differently than that?
0: Man, I love that. That that point in the book really did sort of drive it home for me. I have to say, as someone who's British, significantly easier to talk about borders when you're surrounded by water. You know, we just have a <laughs> yes. mo- we have a moat, a 23-mile moat around our country, which makes it a lot easier. You know? it
1: makes it a lot easier for those australians too but but it's right, miles yet away no have-
0: one wants to go to australia no one's invading australia there's there's nothing there in the middle there's just a little bit around the edge and it's in it's miles away from everything no one's going to Australia. i know but those those beaches are pretty sweet those beaches are pretty sweet yeah you are you are correct um i want to hear We have got long what can we talk all right I want you to tell us the Cliff Notes version of when you got red pilled on your own show by Larry Elder, because this was just hilarious.
1: <laughs> I mean Larry Elder beat me senseless <laughs> with facts and yeah, it you
0: know, should have funny- been it should have been X rated or like R rated and uploaded on a <laughs> Pornhub, shouldn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You definitely should have to click your age. I am twenty one years or older, yeah. Yeah, um, Larry Elder. Well, what's interesting, and I, I write about this, is that I, I really believe this, that the best and worst moment of my career were at the exact same time. That That's a pretty rare thing for someone to be able to say. What happened was I had Larry Elder on the show. At this point, it was very early on in my interviewing where I was mostly having disaffected lefties. So I had Sam Harris on, I had Majid Nawaz on. I had Douglas Murray. Now, Douglas is more of a conservative, but I think he has the, the right sort of classically liberal lens. I had had people that were thought of as pretty much moderates and not really on the right, really. Larry Elder was really the first guy that I had in that position. Now, Larry Elder happens to be black. That's all I would say about his race, actually. This is a guy who knows what he thinks. He's been fighting for what he believes in forever. And we sat down and I did what lefties do. I just said a couple things because they sort of sounded right about systemic racism and policing and all these things. And Larry beat me senseless with <laughs> that. He a- picked
0: a red pill up, bludgeoned you over the head with it, and then forced you to deep throw it. I think that's what, yeah. it, what what it said in the book. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Well, you know, I always say to Candace Owens that I swallowed the red pill, and she snorted it. And in effect, <laughs> yeah, he just he just he just beat me with the red pill. It, it, you know, just beat me into oblivion. Took took whatever was left and reconstituted it. Um, but. The reason that that clip matters, and that clip has been clipped many times and seen by millions and millions of people, is that when that interview ended, we were at a, a aura TV at the time, it was a bigger network, right you know now I'm in my garage, it's totally independent and all that. I had a whole bunch of producers and directors there, and I walked into the green room, uh, sorry, into the control room when it ended. and everybody was like, Dave, we're going to cut that. don't worry about it. We're not going to air that, blah, blah blah. And I said, no, we have to air that. That was real. I get I don't come off great. But if we don't air that, what is the point of having a show about ideas? What is the point of conversing with people if we're gonna edit out, edit out the meat, we're gonna edit out the moment that something really happened? And I think uh, clearly my instincts were right, and when, when the video went up and I suddenly saw all these clips of it and everyone, Larry Elder destroys Dave Rubin and all the versions of that that are possible, it hurt at first, but it was pretty quick until I started realizing that you know most people were like, whoa, Ruben took the hit, but you can see him evolving. And that moment allowed a lot of other people to evolve too. So I'm actually very proud of it. And that's why I would say it's my best and worst moment at the exact same time.
0: I think you should be. The the people who hold on to their views and hold on to being right, like their very being is on the line. And this is a Eckhart Tolleism, where he says that during discussions with someone, we have a fear of being proved wrong because it's tantamount to destruction of our ego. And... Mm-hmm. Especially from doing this podcast, you will be episode hundred sixties somewhere in the hundred sixties. You know, so having done this many episodes, I've been challenged a lot of times. Not as hard or as deep as Larry Elder did to you, um, but which would be almost. <laughs> Let me a- see what
1: I can do for you. Which would
0: be almost impossible. Um, but a, a number of times, I've been, and I'm like, I am having to battle during a conversation with either my position being proved wrong or something which inherently learning about um uh, polyamorous relationships or non-monogamy and stuff like that which just has a visceral reaction from me that makes me think oh that's challenging and at the same time being sufficiently cognizant of it to be able to go right I can allow this to isn't that interesting isn't it interesting that I'm just getting completely dicked on camera by Larry Elder here isn't this a (laughs) a, a, like a a wonderful situation kind of to be in you know and I, I think no matter which side you fall on in any discussion being able to just take the argument on its own merits and trying to remove that ego from the situation firstly you're going to feel so much less pain yeah. because, because it's it's so much more enjoyable to go wow and this is why i think that curiosity is one of this the most powerful personality traits that you can have if you're genuinely curious i was interested to find out what you had to say today. I want you to ask what it felt like to get red-pilled by Larry Eldroney. I want you to ask what it did, all this different stuff. And if you're genuinely curious about that, it allows you to transcend that ego. It also breaks down the barrier between you and that other person, right? Because they yep. think Dave's here to find out he's here to upgrade his own programming and i'm going to keep on pushing him and see how far i can get oh actually i've gone too far he actually has some facts about that he can push back and that's what makes it engaging you know as as a listener and if that's the case and if professional conversationalists like you or larry elder or whoever it might be if that's the mode modus operandi that you're following then presumably that's the best way for everybody to discuss as well
1: so to bring this back to your first question, why'd I dedicate this thing to Ben Affleck? Because Affleck did the reverse of everything that you just said there. Affleck took a thoughtful moment where, we, where it could have been a teachable moment. This idea that we should be able to criticize ideas and yet we don't want to be bigoted towards people. It's such a fundamentally important concept. And what did Affleck do with it? You're gross and racist. And what does that do? It shuts down curiosity. It shuts down exchange. It shuts down the ability for people to have that beautiful dance. You know, the only way you know how to map reality, you, Chris versus me, Dave right now is that we're talking through these wires, right? And it's like, you can say something. And if you said something completely insane and outlandish, I can now map my reality against that and push back. And hopefully I could say, I, I could get you to go, whoa, maybe what I said was bananas or, or vice versa, right? Or you could say something wickedly mind-blowing brilliant. Thank and you. I would go, thank you. Yeah, uh, yep. yeah. Thank you. So please throw one at me. <laughs> I've been doing uh, it. Honestly, Dave, I've been trying. <laughs> that was, no, you've done at least eight of those mind-blowing, you know. drop,
0: that'll take it. So yeah. final thing before we finish up, Um, what have you been most pleasantly surprised by so far in 2020? This can be anything.
1: Well, what I'm really surprised by, well, look, everybody's surprised by Corona and the fact that our world feels up, upside down. So I'm not pleasantly surprised by that. What I am surprised by in a pleasant sense, I sort of referenced earlier, which is that so many of the things that I talk about in this book are suddenly things that are pe- that people are talking about. When I now see lefties on Twitter fighting for states' rights, I go, man, that is a great thing. And by the way, what they're also doing is, have you noticed that identity politics has been really dialed down during this crisis? Because when there's a real crisis, when shit really hits the fan, suddenly we don't have time for gender pronoun conversations. And we don't have time for how many black people are on this panel and how many white women are on this and how many lesbians with a bad knee and all that nonsense. So I'm pleasantly surprised that identity politics has, has been sort of cooled off, not destroyed, but cooled off. And I'm pleasantly surprised that good ideas, states' rights, people really realizing right now in America, maybe I should be allowed to protect myself because our systems and our institutions are shakier than I thought. I love the idea that right now, people that live in big cities are suddenly going, whoa, is this the best way to live? Is it the best way to live in a, in a you know, one bedroom flat, as you guys would call it, for $5,000 to live in Manhattan when I could literally live on 50 acres in Montana? How do I wanna work? Do I wanna telecommute? Uh, do I want, is this even the job that I wanna be at? Or, or right now, we're all trapped in our houses and it's like, am I married to the right person? Do I like these people that I'm in the house with? Did I raise a good kid? You know, Any of those things. I, I'm so inspired right now because all of this tumult it's scary, it feels like will the world ever fully return? I don't know that it'll return. I think we have a new blaze, a new trail to blaze, but I'm excited by the fertile ground right now. Like, everything's kinda messy, and, and out of a mess, that's where beauty arrives, right? Like, out of chaos is what, that's what makes great art. That's what makes great music. And by the way, we haven't had a lot of great music lately. We haven't had a lot of great art lately. I'm not saying none of it. And of course, it, it's smattered across the internet. But like, there's a huge human opportunity right now. And I think people like yourself, people that are probably listening to this, people that have been a little ahead of the curve and outside of mainstream for a long time, like I think our day is coming, so let's grab it.
0: I love it man. Yeah, in an absence of a real crisis we create our own and in the presence of one we reset our values. That's how I'm looking at this
1: situation. That's one of those brilliant things. Just uh, I just felt like
0: I felt like I've got the guy behind Ruben Report on so I just had to mic drop the <laughs> final bit, you know. I can't let you have the last say. You actually, actually I can. Where can people check out your show and the book and, and you online? Where should they go?
1: So you can get the book at don'tburnthisbook.com where we have a uh, little brown books is our UK distributor. So it's uh, you can go to Amazon UK or uh, wherever else you get books. And the show is youtube.com slash uh, Ruben report, instagram dot instagram.com slash Ruben report. My branding guy's pretty solid. So we're okay.
0: I love it. Dave, man, it has been fantastic hopefully we're going to get through this uh this next few months and i'm going to hassle you and i'm going to get you back on but thank you so much for your time man you know what to do like share and subscribe links to everything including dave's fantastic new book will be in the show notes below if you've got any questions or comments or you just want to hassle us online go there as well man. chris
1: i enjoyed talking to you and what, what do you think should i shave the head too i think you're, top you're knot. killing it over there i think right? top
0: knot i think you could get away with a top knot. i <laughs> genuinely do you and michael malice both with a man bun it would absolutely kill it let's do it
1: Listen, the longer we stay in quarantine, I may have no choice, so we'll see. Cheers, man. Thanks, man.